all just pray to the Lord? Why don't you pray together with me if it's not customary for you to pray from the youngest to the oldest tonight, whatever age you may be. Why don't you just say a prayer as I bow my head and pray? Why don't you offer up one as well? Again, 12 years old to 22 doesn't matter. Why don't you pray with me? Our gracious heavenly father, Lord, we've gathered into your presence tonight and there's the, the, the Christian can sense it, Lord. The, the counselors and the, the ministry here, Lord, can sense that you're here. And Lord, I know that there's young hearts that are already being stirred, sensing that you're here. And Lord, I pray that right now, whatever veil of tradition, whatever veil of habit, Lord, whatever veil of memory and repetition, may it just be broken right now. And may we all just feel as if we've entered into something special and something different. Lord, may the young people right now feel that this is a special time for them. That this is a moment that they perhaps was unexpected, but yet you've desired to meet us here. And Lord, as these many prayers are offered up to you right now, may your presence, which we know is here, begin to impress itself upon us. Just as we feel the world when we're out there, just as much as dogma and creed and ideas and politics and entertainment and perversion press itself on us to deform us. May your Holy Spirit and your presence now begin to come to bear upon our being, Lord. Come to press itself upon this seed. And may we see tonight, Lord, young people be burst forth to life. May the seed which you planted inside of them be quickened to new life tonight. Lord, may the work which you've been doing in their hearts and in their lives for many weeks now come to a climax, we pray. We commit this service to you, this portion to you, Lord, desiring that you strike us with your word and that your presence have preeminence in our midst. And Father, we ask these precious things in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 have trouble finding it it's right after proverbs chapter 22 and then we'll read in verse 7 well i know you all had a great time on the mountain right i figured at least two-thirds of you might say yes but did anyone enjoy themselves today okay good all right might have to start slow tonight but i know that my family enjoyed themselves we appreciate everyone who Took an interest in them and helped them enjoy themselves. They're in the junior, junior camp, I guess. Didn't know you had one, but I brought my own and, uh, we didn't, uh, we knew that we would probably be, um, our family would probably be the only ones with kids at the camp. We knew that was a tremendous, a great chance, but we kind of thought maybe there might be a few others. And thank goodness for little brother David. He's the other little buddy to my boys this weekend. And so that's the junior camp, just the exclusive little junior camp this weekend. And I appreciate everyone and their kindness to our family and love that you've shown us. And we do really love you tremendously as family. We have such dear friends um, here in this church. And it's just so wonderful to be able to serve the Lord with you. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. Apologize if we're just going straight to the word, but we know it's been a, a long day out in the sun, there in the snow and a lot of different activities. And so we just want to let the word have the preeminence at this time. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. It is speaking about a man and his appetites, a man and his desires. So it says this, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart 
is not with thee. We often say, as a man thinketh in his heart, and it says it here, and it could be read that way, as a person, as a man, as an individual. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Amen. Lord bless you. You may have your seats. If if I could request a device to control the slideshow, it would be greatly appreciated. A device from off of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But I'm going to bring it under subjection, hopefully, and use it today, this evening. I'm going to continue on the subject of who are you? And um, as we ministered last night on being born into chaos, I'd like to speak on who are you and then use the subject of the least desire. So we're going to be talking about desire. I felt like it was just the Lord that would cause us to sing such a beautiful song before we came uh, to the pulpit of saying, by confession, and maybe you just sing it because you know the words, uh, but yet you're saying, I want what you want. Uh, and Brother uh, Ryan even mentioned, do you desire something? And kind of evoking thoughts about what you desire and what you long for. And so as we ministered last night on who are you, and we're kind of looking at your identity, uh, what you're made of, what's, uh, what your many different things that we could say in regards to that. But tonight our subject is last night was born into chaos. Tonight it's the least desire, and we'll come to desire uh, maybe towards the middle of the service tonight. And just to recap a few things from last night um, as we looked at it, you were born into chaos and as the, right where we're ending there at the end we're ending in genesis chapter 4 and that was the very beginning of satan's eden and it was after the fall of humanity and so even mankind was no longer in the image that it was before the fall uh the perfect eden that had existed that garden that was reserved for man uh um in the in the prophecies and the scripture that we could draw from in genesis 1 and 2 and even chapter 3 that had been lost it was fallen now mankind is thrust into a chaotic world that is no longer like the original and two uh, sons are born and not according to original commandment uh, they are born under a hybrid. They're born under the will of flesh, the will of man, and not according to the will of God. Not according to Genesis 1.28, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. But it's a, it's a process that bypassed um, God's original spoken word. And these two sons are born into chaos. Uh, they don't have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Abel as a direct descendant from Adam and the woman does not have, even though his DNA would have, would have in every way been a resemblance of Adam's and the woman's, uh, he did not have the Holy Ghost. He was not in the image of God as Adam had previously been in the image of God, though he was in the image of Adam. And though there would have been some resemblance that it's now a fallen flesh and even though it's fallen flesh. Even though the great channels of mankind are clogged and even though there's uh, angels guarding the way to the tree of life, God still spoke to Abel and gave him a revelation and he knew how to worship God and thereby please God even in the very beginning of Satan's eating. And then we could even see how that God began to deal with Cain. That God was still speaking and what Cain ran from was not just the voice of God, but it was the very presence of God. And so at the very beginning of Satan's Eden, God is revealing to us uh, the, the type of our end time that when Satan's Eden comes to its perfection, God is going to give revelation that the voice of God will declare the presence of God. That in the midst of chaos, there can still be a place of safety from everything else. And we have, we could take a lot of time just continuing to look at Satan's perfect Eden. Brother Bram said, now all again has come like it was before God moved upon the earth. It's become a spiritual chaos. 
as there would have been a, a literal physical chaos in the earth before God began to move upon the face of the waters, before God began to bring life forth, before light began to bring forth life. Uh, there was chaos without form and void. It was very chaotic. And that was before God brought order and a perfect Eden. So then after the fall and Satan begins to build his Eden for 6,000 years, Brother Bram says it's come right back to what it was before God built his perfect Eden. Why? Because the climax of Satan's Eden is chaos. The climax of God's Eden is order. So he has brought a spiritual chaos, though there may still be some semblance of order in nature and many things that God has set in motion by laws that exist. Spiritually, it's absolute chaos. And, and if I could say this, and just kind of recapping some of the things we ministered on last night. I'm going to say this about young people in general. Not Christian young people. Not, not necessarily you. But just in general. About young people today. And just reading this statement from this article that I had read. It says grappling with the world has to be more complicated for kids than it's ever been. And it's, it's saying this just about any kid. Not necessarily kids that go to private school or kids that believe uh, uh, um, uh, that are Christians or hold to certain conservative ideals. But no, just for any kid, it's got to be more complicated than it's ever been. And as we said last night, it's a very scary world. It's a very confusing world to be living in for young people. There's a lot of social pressure. There's a, uh, and the pressure just isn't where you feel it. It's kind of, uh, bumping up against you, but now it demands a response from you. It, it asks that you identify. It's going to require of you some sense of response to indicate, well, how do you feel about this? And where do you stand with this? And how do you identify? And so for you now, if I could speak to you as my audience and not necessarily about the general climate out in the world today, for you, you are born into chaos, but you're also born into a message family. And you find yourself very near what we call the message and we call, uh, we might call, we call the truth of the word. And, uh, and I am trying to be very delicate in the way that I phrase this, but I'm trying to say it in a way that perhaps you can better relate to, um, as young people. And because you were born at this time to the family you were born to, it does, and I'm speaking about just one particular aspect, it adds more complexity than it otherwise is for maybe other people that you know. Maybe even other family members that don't believe the message. Maybe if you go to public school or work out in the world, you find that you're rubbing shoulders with other people your age. And maybe there's a way that you could talk to each other about the pressures and about this and about that. But then there's a point at which your situation and what you're going through, to them it would seem very odd. They wouldn't necessarily be relate to just exactly how you're wrestling with things and how you're looking at things. So it adds a different kind of testing, a different kind of challenge for you. And for you, and I, I want to speak to the, um, to you even from the youngest to the oldest. And when I say these things, if any of you believe and you feel in your heart that you have had a genuine experience with God and you have had a new birth, which the new birth is the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that if you have had that experience, then what I'm saying here is not in any way to try to take that away from you. But I want to speak in general to young people because I find that generally with a group of people, whether I'm preaching a convention or whether I'm preaching a youth convention, the majority do not have a new birth experience. Help me out, guys. Do we need to have a talk over here? We don't talk about these things beforehand, but maybe I'm going to have to say, hey, guys, look, all right, I'm going to say a few things tonight that I'm probably going to need your help if it's true. Only if it's true. You know, sometimes people say, can you say amen? And you're like, "Mm, nope. 
Mm-mm. And uh, sometimes, maybe one time it's just going to slip out. You're going to go, nope. But I'm not going to say, can you say amen? I don't think. And I might have just sowed the seed. But for you who are do not have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you're born into the message. You can see the contrast, the great contrast between the world and the message. And you can see just how different uh, what it teaches. And even the example that your parents live out before you and other people you go to church with. They live differently. They aspire to achieve different things. They respond to things differently. And, and what they put their money towards and their time towards and what they value and what the things they try to promote within the family and the things they try to lift up. Just even the idea and the principle of applying the token is something that seems very foreign and odd to anybody else in the world. You could take some of the most conservative Republicans, some of the most, the people who are just thumping the Bible and protesting against abortion and, and people who seem to be very, very conservative and very, very strict when it comes to the scripture. Just the principle of applying the token to them would border on child abuse. As I, they were threatening to call child protective services on me when my children had never seen Peter Pan. And so there is a, it is, there's a lot of things about the message that even to people who might seem to be Christian and, 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 uh, believe in Jesus Christ and, uh, and I, uh, desire to achieve certain conservative ideals or some level of strict living, the message is very, very different to the world. And so you as a young person without, without the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you're looking at the message, you look at the world, and you're trying to process the differences. You're trying to understand um, what this means to you, and and how things are uh, how things are unfolding, and what the what are the implications, and how does this fit in with what the world wants, and what the world is presenting, and what the message is presenting, what your parents say is true, and what everyone else says is true. And just as there is a paradox to the age where we are living in the worst age and the greatest age. And so it almost sounds like it doesn't make sense. It's the greatest age and it's the worst age. It's the greatest age and it's the worst age. Just like Jesus said, I and you and you and me. Well, which one is it then? But it's a paradox. And it's the worst age and the greatest age. And then it's a paradox of your life born into the message. It's the greatest privilege. But then sometimes let's just be honest, young people, adults, just close your eyes, plug your ears. Let's just be honest. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes you find yourself actually asking, I wish, I wish it didn't come this way. You might even feel in your heart, you know what, I believe this is true and I, I believe that this is what the Lord has for me, but I wish I could have come a different way. I wish I could have come to it like this person did who never knew anything about it and they were raised in the world and they have this huge contrast between addictions and trials and circumstances and never knowing any truth. Oh, I wish I could be like a believer from China whose parents never even believed in God and nothing was ever presented to to them like truth and they didn't come up through religion and you might find yourself I think that would be a better way even if you believe this is where you should be you might have told yourself at one time I wish it wouldn't have come this way because you're being honest with yourself it's been hard it's a great privilege but at the same time it adds another layer to you where sometimes you don't necessarily see it as a privilege and with that as um, perhaps maybe just recapping a little bit from last night and uh and just to if it seemed very dour last night and it seemed like almost foreboding oh you're born into chaos you're born into chaos and you're hoping perhaps that i would just say no it's all fake news uh it's not chaotic and and maybe for some of you i confirmed your worst fears you were hoping maybe it isn't as crazy as i think it is maybe the world isn't absolutely insane it is absolutely insane and i'm going to probably make it seem a little bit worse for a while 
Because for you young people in the time that you're living in, it is so different than any other time. There used to be a time for any young person your age, there used to be an innocence to youth. But the age of innocence is over. It's completely gone. So you're coming to the age of accountability where the world in a world that no longer endeavors to protect the innocence of youth. At one time, innocence could be protected. And they would go to great lengths to keep young minds away from certain things. And it's not necessarily perverted things or things that would be vulgar, but just things that would be more appropriate for an adult to process. It would be more appropriate for an adult to consider and to know about certain things and perhaps be challenged with certain things. And there was a time that you could you could keep youth innocent. And all you would have to do is perhaps you don't even know about these things, but in even with respect to when things were available in print media... There was a way to take the news and even periodicals and publications and stories and you could take that and put it somewhere where young people couldn't touch it. You could keep keep it out of reach of a five-year-old. You could hide it. You could keep them from being challenged with certain themes and certain situations and even the news and the horror of death and, and frauds and cons and all sorts of things. You could protect an innocent mind from having to be challenged with the ravages of a disease or certain deaths or the war or politics. But with the saturation of media... And once things evolved out of print media and they began to be broadcast over the airwaves, whether it be radio or television, there were actually laws that were put in place by the government and by the governing, uh, the, the entities that regulated the broadcast of those things. They limited what could be broadcast during certain times and what could be purchased by minors in an effort to protect innocence. And certain programs were not allowed to be aired before nine o'clock, before 10 o'clock. Certain things were not, you weren't able to access them and you weren't allowed to have access to them and you weren't allowed to see them and you weren't allowed to be exposed to them. But now through the saturation of media, children can no longer be protected from very specific influences. Now you can get whatever the devil wants you to have anytime, anywhere, any place. There's, there's the controls aren't in place. The laws aren't in place. The, the barriers to, to seeing things and experiencing things and reading things and hearing voices and being challenged or opportunities being presented. It's now for anyone in this room, if you're 12 years old to 22 years old, no matter what age you are, through media and technology, you can be presented with things that originally society itself would have protected you from it. But And this is perhaps maybe more instructive for those that are sitting at the back tonight. And maybe some parents that are streaming and some that may still be in the kitchen right now. The, 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 the world is not going to protect our children. School is not going to protect our children. The government's not going to protect our children. Social programs, welfare, government entities, even businesses and corporations. Apple don't care about your kids. Google don't care about your kids. Snapchat, Instagram and all those things don't care about your kids. And the family is the last line of defense against the world that wants to strip our young people of innocence. And it's for our youth, you can hardly get any distance from the chaos. As I was growing up, I went to public school. When I came home from school, I could I, I could sit in an atmosphere that was that was controlled by my parents. The token applied. Maybe a message playing. Uh, my, my parents didn't have earbuds that they could just pop in their ear and, and, and listen to a message. It would be playing for the whole house to hear. Christian music playing for the whole house to hear. 
the, the things that would perhaps populate a library or things that you would read, message books and uh, quote books and, and tapes and things of message singers. And you'd have the believers and the La Fontaines and everything. And that would maybe be the atmosphere that I would walk into as a young person. But as time has progressed and, and things have um, come to where it is today, now you can walk into a home after all the pressures of school, come home. And what you do is you'll grab a device and you'll hide away in your room and you still have connectivity and access to the very pressures you've been experiencing all day. All the voices that you can try to get distance from, you're not able to get distance from it. Through social media, through people you stay in contact with, through the news. And you have to be online and you have to be doing research or you have to do this and you have to do that. And it just has a way of trying to find you. I'm not even suggesting that you're going out trying to find it and that you're doing things secretly and you're sneaking home and you're taking dad's iPad and you lock yourself in a closet and you begin to browse um, your social media. No, it just has a way of finding you no matter what it is. And it's a it can be so one way I was just thinking about it and the, the feeling that I kept experiencing. And so I know it's real for somebody here tonight. You feel suffocated. Some of you young people are feeling suffocated. And you, and as you think about it, because you, you, there's a sense of anxiety that comes when someone begins to feel suffocated, you start trying to process what's suffocating me. Is it my parents? Is it the message? Is it the standards? Is it the rules? Is it the world? Is it the pressure? And you begin to get very, very anxious, very, very pressured. And you're facing all of this again. I want to remind you, you're facing all of this without the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So as you feel the pressure closing in, as you leave from an atmosphere at work or college or at school, and it can even be a private school. Some people think, well, private schools are immune from it. No, you know what? Sometimes private schools are worse. Because in private schools, they everyone conforms through dress code. And you have to conform to certain patterns of behavior. And everyone looks the same. And everyone believes the same. And then so there's more pressure to deviate from the norm in ways that nobody else can see. It's the truth. And I'm not saying, well, Brother Aaron, you're just saying that because we have a private school. I'm just saying because it's true. I went to private school. It was easier to be a Christian in public school than it was in a private school. Because there's a different pressure. There's a different underhanded way that it moves. There's a different way that the pressure comes. There's a different way that it's talked about. There's a different way that you have to stand out. Many times you're having to do it in a way that it's not obvious. Whereas if you take a young girl that believes the message and she can go to public school and they would just respect her for being different. And and, and she just stands out by virtue of, of doing what is right. But then when everyone's dressed in the same and everyone seems to act the same and everyone has to hold to a particular ideal, the devil has very sneaky ways to get in your mind and get in your hearts and begin to defile your innocence. Come on, somebody. And you're doing all this without the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now. To make it worse, <laughs> to make it worse, the world is chaotic, right? We got that. The world is chaos and you are too. You're chaotic. The world is in chaos and your mind and your emotions are in chaos. Proverbs chapter 23 verse 7 says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So as a man thinks in his heart, so the, what, what's being talked about is some mechanism in the man that has the ability to think. 
And it was speaking perhaps to a spirit. And you could say imagination, conscience, memory, reason, or affection. Or you could just look at it as a thought process, a way that a man thinks. He says, as a man thinks in his heart, that's just the way that he is. He may say, eat and drink. And he said, oh, eat and drink. He says, but his heart is not with it. Saying it doesn't matter what you say. And I'll say this to you, young people. It doesn't matter what you actually say, but it's what's in your really in your heart that makes you what you are. Who you are relates to what is in you, what you're thinking about, what dominates your thoughts. And so the Bible is saying, if we say, who are you? We might say, well, if we're going to begin to think about it philosophically, well, what dominates your thoughts? What are you thinking about? What do you set your ambitions to? And the Bible is actually saying, if we say, who are you? The Bible will say, well, as a man thinks in his heart, that's how he is. And let's just say young people, uh, I don't know, let's say 12 to 22. Let's just say young in that range. They have minds that are terribly imbalanced. They have minds that are structurally, biochemically, neurologically, their minds are imbalanced. And because of the imbalance, and let's say from 12 to 22, you can be susceptible to negative emotions. This is just because your own human mind. And you can be susceptible to stress, anxiety. Making risky decisions, social pressure. And, and this is, this applies to anybody. And being raised in the message doesn't make you, make you immune from that. Because you're born to message parents. God just didn't give you a different mind than everybody else. And so you just have, a, you're numb to social pressure and you're numb to anxiety and you're numb to this. Usually when people get numb, it's learned helplessness. They've been abused and disappointed so much that they get to a particular age where they just feel helpless. And the ones that are most unaffected and the most numb, they're the ones that have been the most hurt. They're the ones that are actually the most emotional. Even though it may appear that way. And so because just even the way that your mind is, so we can say the world is this way and the world is chaotic and you're born into the message and everything's chaotic. But then you have a mind itself that is very unbalanced. And because of that, you can, it's easier for you to think negatively. It's easier for you to respond to social pressure. It's easier for you to feel stress and anxiety. It's easier for you to make decisions that are very risky. And there are two separate neurological processes or systems actually that develop in childhood and into early adulthood. And I apologize if this seems to be very academic, but it's just descriptive of it, just using some very plain terms to you. Um, in, uh, uh, this is just how your, your human mind is at this age. You have what is called an incentive processing system and a cognitive control system. I'm just going to say, trust me on this. <laughs> I, are you a doctor? No, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express once. Actually, I am a doctor. I forgot. I am a doctor. Just not that kind, I guess. Trust me, I'm a doctor. How would you say that? (laughs) So you have an incentive processing system and a cognitive control system. The incentive processing system makes you sensation seeking. It makes you emotional reactive. And it actually, this process in your mind, this neurological process in your mind, makes you more attentive and more aware of social information. So this incentive processing system, we could call it reward system or the pleasure system of the mind. It wants to feel a a sensation of pleasure. It wants to um, experience uh, uh, some, it wants to be, it's more emotionally, more emotionally reactive. It's more social. 
And uh, so it's, it wants to feel pleasure. It wants to experience, uh, it has an incentive to be rewarded and to be neurons firing off. And so this is what uh, all of us have in our minds. We have an incentive processing system. But the cognitive control system is what regulates the incentive processing system. So this is true for everybody. You all have a part of your brain that wants to be thrilled, that wants to be have experienced pleasure, that wants to be social, wants to be accepted, and, and wants to um, uh, uh, is uh, emotionally reactive and sensation seeking. But then you have a cognitive part of your mind that gives the, it gives you a self regulating po- uh, um, policy, it's supposed to control your emotions, it's supposed to regulate your behavior. It's more logical, it's more rational, it's a, a more reasonable reason with things. And so this, this inability in a way to try to control your urges and tendencies, it's more calculating. It might think, think through something. Like, oh, you should do that jump. Go ahead, do it. You should do it. And, and, and you get once that cognitive control system would say, you know what, as much fun as that might be, I'm, I'm beginning to process right now the ramifications for doing that. And you begin to think about it a little bit differently. And you make a decision, you know what, no, I'm not going to do it. People, do it, do it, do it, do it, you do it. And you're like, well, you do it. And you're like, I don't want to do it, you do it. <laughs> and kind of, maybe it's the process when somebody goes, oh my, that's the nastiest thing I've ever tasted. Here, try it. <laughs> the cognitive control system says, no, thank you. <laughs> but here's the problem. The incentive part of your mind, the incentive processing system, it reaches full power in early early adolescence. So that by the time you're 13, the pleasure-seeking part is in full power. I'm not going to say fully mature because it doesn't act maturely. But in one sense, it's fully matured. It's full power. It's fully grown. If you're 12, 13 years old, you could probably say, my incentive processing system is on full power. My sensation-seeking self is fully grown. I want to be pleased. I want to be, I want to feel sensation. I want things to, I want to, I want to feel it. I want to experience it. I want, whoa, I want to do something fun. <laughs> and so by the time you're 13, your, your, your emotional, social, pleasure-seeking mind is very, very robust. But your cognitive control system isn't finished maturing or growing until you're in your early 20s. So even though you have that part, it hasn't caught up to the pleasure part. And so just as a young person, 13 years old, you want to experience things. You want to feel things. You're starting to think different ways than you've ever felt before. And you're starting to process emotions and temptations and things are being presented to you. And, and all these things start coming at you. And you're wildly processing incentives. And you don't really have a grown control system to say, uh, no, stop. Just in your human mind, there isn't a grown process in you, this cognitive control system that can regulate urges, that can regulate desires, that can cause you to do things that you shouldn't do. And they find that, and there's a lot of studies that have looked at it and said that people who are 21 years old, they engage in a lot of risky behavior and they drink while driving, they do this and they do that and they do this and they do that. And they find that this would be true of 15 year olds if it was legal. That if you allowed a 15-year-old to drink, they would drink and drive, perhaps in greater numbers than a 21-year-old will. Because there's many laws that are in place to keep you from behaving irrationally or illegally. But given the opportunity, a 15-year-old is probably going to do it. A 15-year-old will vandalize. A 15-year-old will do things and say things and, and act in a certain way. It's like, why in the world did you do that? <laughs> 
Why are you asking me? I think I might have, I don't know if I've used, shared it here before. I know I did share a Calvin and Hobbes thing one time. Maybe it was the multiple choice. It's like, oh, this test is going to be easy. And it was like true, false. But uh, there's this cartoon where Calvin is just beating nails into a coffee table. And it shows the mom running through two different panels. And she gets him. She says, Calvin, what are you doing? He looks down at the nail and he looks up at her. And he's like, is that a trick question? <laughs> looks kind of obvious. I'm pounding a nail on the table. But maybe the question isn't what, it's why. Just like we're not asking how. We already know how. What we want to know now is why. Why now, brown cow? So if you add to this, to the, you add this way of thinking to the pressures of the age and the chaos of the world, that's a very toxic combination. Because now you are thrust into a world that is chaotic and you're in a situation that's very complicated to the human mind. And then your mind also is just has this toxic to this this chaos and this imbalance and wanting to be feel pleasure and not yet having things maybe to control those pleasures. And if I could just back up, I want to go through this and maybe ponder this a little bit more. The incentive processing part of your mind, it's carnal, it's sensual, and it's not aligned with God. This this part of you at 13 years old, that, that sensation seeking, that's thrill seeking, it's not of God, it's part of your fallen nature. Timothy says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 22, flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It shows by, by putting those two together, youthful lust, it sets it against righteousness, faith, charity, peace, and those that call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. Youthful lust are not going to bring you in contact with righteousness and faith and charity and peace. And those who don't call on the Lord out of a pure heart are probably going to bring you in contact with youthful lust. So the wisdom to Timothy that's being imparted to us from scripture is that you want to identify yourself and associate yourself with those who have a pure heart and who are calling upon the Lord so that you can follow after these things because youthful lust will draw you in the wrong direction. And you might as well, you could say the incentive processing system, flee it, but follow after righteousness, faith and charity and peace with them that call on the Lord of a pure heart because youthful lust are the desires and the challenges unique to your age. Youthful lust are the, are the temptations that a young person has, an adolescent has. You can say it's even a temptation that's unique to your age. This age is the worst. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. So now as we think about the chaos, war being chaos and the world uh, being chaotic and everything going on in the world and your conflict with the world. And now there's an imbalance in your mind. But now fleshly lust war against the soul. And it's just not chaos out there. It's chaos in here. It's not just a war out there. There's a war in here. There's an internal struggle. There's a battling that takes place. And yeah, sure, you're fighting with things in the world. But when you get distance from the world and you can come to a camp like this and then you find yourself really wrestling on the inside. Because fleshly lust war against the soul. It creates a war with something different in a different place. If I could say it's something put there by God. And the desires and the wants of the flesh actually begin to war with something that's contrary to it that's in your soul. When it says it's it wars, it, there's, it's, a, it's opposed to. It's against it. 
Fleshly lusts are not going to lead you to, to a body change. Fleshly lusts are not going to lead you to a new birth experience. They lead you away from it. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And so it's not gonna, it's not gonna lead you in the right place, just in this generality of how the heart thinks and how the mind thinks and these youthful lusts that are in you, these, these elements of this incentive processing system, they are against the things of God. And the world tries to use that part of you to motivate you. That's how economics works. That's, uh, that's why to me one of the most important fields there are, there is to, uh, well, I think one of the most uh, fascinating fields of study is in behavioral economics. Why do people act the way that they do? Why do they do the things that they do? And science has begun to figure out there's biases in people's minds. And they think very weirdly. You're predictably irrational. They, they have found, and this is how the human mind works. You could walk into a deli. We could go to the lunch uh, counter tomorrow and they could say, what would you want? Ham or turkey? You say, ham or turkey? Give me turkey. And all of a sudden, uh, a sister could say, well, we also have pastrami. And you say, oh, you have pastrami. Well, then give me ham. <laughs> That's how you think. Like, well, when you're given a choice between ham and turkey, you want a turkey. But now that there's a third choice, you want the ham. And it doesn't make any sense. That's because we're weird. The human mind is so messed up and so muddled and so confusing. And the world capitalizes on that. Because they understand the heuristics. They understand the biases. They know they, Satan's been studying human behavior for 6,000 years. He's been deforming it. He's been manipulating it. And they use it to manipulate. And they will manipulate you through those easily influenced emotions. And the devil, and I would even say selfish people and narcissists, will use your emotions against you to control you to fit their own agendas. And so to many people, you're just going to be a pawn in their game. The world wants to use you. People that you may think that, that may be close to you and situations and, and things that you come in contact with. They're trying to use this impressionable mind. They're trying to use your emotions in a way to manipulate you to fit their agenda. That's just your emotional part. The incentive uh, processing system. And you think, oh, wow, man, that from 13 years old, I'm wrestling with this immature mind. So then we've got this other part, this cognitive control system. It's self-regulating. It's logical. It's reasonable. It's rational. And so once you begin to enter into the young adulthood in your early 20s, the mind becomes more rational, more logical, and it begins to control these urges. And you might think, oh, once I get to 22, things will be better. No, no, it gets worse. Because Romans 8, 7 says the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then as the incentive processing system wants to feel and it's, it's carnal and it seems to be, almost be sensuous and it would work against the soul and work against the world, then it's not a matter of just getting to 22 and all of a sudden you kind of come into your right mind. You don't turn spiritual when you turn 21 or turn 22. It doesn't work that way. It actually gets worse. Because it says the carnal mind is enmity against God. It opposes God. It, it actually, the more rational you become, the more reasonable you become, the more self-regulating you become, the more you're actually working against God. Do you realize the mark of maturity in the world, and I believe I've shared this with you before, to the world, the mark of maturity is independence. But to God, the mark of maturity is dependence. 
The world would look at an individual who can live on their own and make their own decisions and and forge your way in the world and and can set out on their own and sustain themselves in the world. Say that's the mark of a mature individual that works in worldly things. But to God, the more dependent you become, the more spiritually mature you are. And so once you come to this age where this cognitive control system is fully grown and we can say more mature and it reaches its peak, then you become more self-regulating. You become more dependent upon yourself and you haven't become more spiritual. You just become more able to resist the urges that you had when you were younger. You'll find many different places where Brother Branham says this makes this kind of statement. But this is in the message. Come follow me. He says it's what's in the kid. The makeup of the kid, what's on the inside of you. I'm asking you who you are. And he said, it's what's on the inside of you. And what you are now is what you're prob, what you'll, you are probably be the rest of your life. No, brother Philip, I'm not saying you're going to be 12 years old the rest of your life. But what you are right now is what you'll probably be, he's saying, for the rest of your life. So he makes this statement, you're on a changing spot. My, you're at a changing place. You've come to the changing table. Glory. You're on a changing spot. He says, you know what? 86% of the conversions to Jesus Christ is done before 21 years old. He uses different percentages in different places. But the point is this, that the majority, the great majority of conversions take place before 21 years old. He says it shows it. Statistics show it. 86% that that done before is done. 86% of the conversions to Jesus Christ is done before 21 years old. It shows it. Statistics shows it. 86% that come to Christ come before they're 21. Now, every time you do a poll, it doesn't always work out this way. But who did it by, before 21 or younger? Who came to the Lord 21 or younger? Well, up here, it's 100%. In the back, you look at the, the adults and the parents here. 21 or younger. Brother Martin, different ones. of The, the counselors here. If you're a counselor or an adult and you're, you're over 22 and you came to the Lord at 21 or younger, raise your hand real high. Raise your hand real high. Now, look around the room, young people. Look at that. You can put your hands down now. So you could say it's probably a little bit more than 86% in here tonight. By the time you're 21 years old, he says, oh, it's possible. Sure, they come 70 and 80 years old, but it's very rare. Anybody who came when they're older than 21, raise your hand. Now, there's several that came when they were over 21. It's possible, but it's rare. He says, see, you make yourself when you are young. You set your ambitions to what you want to do and what you're trying to achieve in life. You think of it. And as you think, of course, your mind, it's presented in your mind by an unknown something that dominates your mind. So an unknown something, plan something in your mind, you begin to think about it and obsess about it and you want to do it and you want to accomplish it. And as it gets into your mind and you begin to think about it, he says, and then when it becomes in your mind, then you speak it and that's your, that's what you're going to do. You're going to do it, and then your ambitions, that's a strong desire to do something. Your ambitions drive you to do it. Something comes in your mind from an unknown something, and you begin to think about it. He's saying this takes place before as a young child, as a kid, as an adolescent. Oh, I don't know, let's say from 12 to 22, just using arbitrary numbers that just might be the age brackets for all the campers. I'm not saying it is, but could it be? And you have this 
something that sets in your mind and you begin to pursue it and you want to do it. And that's just what begins to carry you through life. Well, when did you make the decision to become a lawyer? Well, it happened at this time and it happened at that. And I just wanted to do it. And it's just something came in your mind. Something was presented to you. You've set your ambitions to it. And that's what you turned out to do. And Brother Bram's using this very language here about a kid becoming something. He's using desires and ambitions and what would drive them to do it. And he says it's before they turn 20. If they don't come to Christ before they're 21, it's, it can happen, but it's harder. And so what Brother Branham's saying, it fits perfectly with how you're developing. That you have this incentive process that wants to be thrilled and wants to seek and wants to have pleasure. And that's just one part of your thinking. But if the other part has a chance to catch up and mature, then you get more set in your ways, as he says. You become, he says, he says, you, um, he said 86% come to Christ, come before they're 21. He says, after you pass that age, you become more molded or set in your ways. So by the time you get 21, 22 years old, now the thinking part is really working in these two different dual part systems. And now you may want to do things, but now you have a little bit more restraint with it. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're better off because now you're more equipped to actually resist the dealing of the Lord or carnally respond to something when God wants you to respond by faith. I wonder how many 23-year-old message kids sat in in the tents out here and when the word came forth, like, yep, uh uh-huh, that's what I need to do. Fine, I get it. That's what I need to do. And instead of just dying out to a birth, they just resolved that now they're going to regulate more according to the message. And God's like, I don't want you to self-regulate. I want you to die. I want you to die to your thinking. I want to die to your thoughts. I want you to die to that attitude. The very attitude that I want to try. Yes. I want you to die and just give up. But we think more rationally, think more logically, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're perverted. I can't wait to leave here, get high, and kill somebody. No. It's just the way the mind works. So you're born into chaos, and chaos was born in you. So how in the world are you going to make it, young people? How are you going to make sense of everything? I know it might seem really, really dark right now. And it might seem like, man, this is just a... Uh, a real tough spot to be. So I've spent all my time last night and tonight to come to this spot. And and I'm asking an honest question of your heart as you begin to dig in your heart. Is there a part of you that desires order in the midst of chaos? That when you see the conflict out there and you experience the conflict in here, there's a sense that you, you want something to be settled. You want a place, you want something that there can be some stability and some something to make sense in life. And so I have one question I want to ask the young people. And if I'm asking it different ways, it's just the lawyer in me. It's the same question. Do you have an ambition for God? I don't want any hands raised right now. I want, it, I want you to look into your heart. You know, sometimes we can come to church with a pitchfork. And that means everything we hear, we just want to shovel over to Brother Tom or shovel over here, shovel over there. But right now I want you to have a rake. And what I'm saying to you, I want you to just rake it right into your heart. I want you to pick it up and I want you to look at it. And I want you to think very, very deeply right now, young people. I don't want you to raise hands because I could ask, how many have a desire to serve God? And hands start going up and you'll be like, don't want everybody in the dorm tonight, my cabin, ask me, "Hmm, well, why didn't you raise your hand? Hmm? Are you declaring that you do not have a desire for God? And you're like, yes, yes. Oh, I want to serve God. I want it so bad. I couldn't even raise my hands. I was just paralyzed. Right? And I don't want it, I don't want it to be that kind of pressure that you gotta feel like you gotta raise your hand. I just want you to ask yourself in your heart, 
Do you, in the midst of the chaos, desire truth? In your heart of hearts, is there something that's crying out for God in the midst of all the insanity, in all the uncertainty? Do you? And again, I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but do you want to serve the Lord? And you might, if you had the opportunity to talk to me, you said, Brother Aaron, if this off the record, you won't tell anybody. And I could ask you, do you want to serve the Lord? You said, well, be honest with you. I don't know that I do. And honesty is good. And so for you to ponder that question and, and to keep you from giving the wrong answer, when I ask you, do you want to serve the Lord? I'm not asking you if there's an absence of a desire for the world. When I say, Jack, do you want to serve the Lord? I'm not asking you to answer. But if I said, do you want to serve the Lord? And all of a sudden he begins to think, well, you know, I do want to do this. And I don't know if that's exactly, you know, what I would do if I was a Christian. And, you know, I, I mean, it, even it could be with respect to playing a sport. He said, do you want to serve the Lord? And party goes, well, man, I really want to become, I want to become a hockey player. And he realized, if I'm a hockey player, I won't make church all the time. I'm going to be pulled out on the road. I'll be doing this. I'll be doing that. And so you start wrestling with the fact that you really want to achieve something and do something. Or you have these desires and ambitions. Maybe one of you is in a relationship right now that you know is not pleasing to the Lord. And I say, well, do you want to serve the Lord? And like, man, but I really have this attraction to this person. And you start wrestling. So when I ask you, do you want to serve the Lord? Hey, I'm going to get down on your level. When I ask you that question, I'm not asking you, do you have the absence of a worldly desire? Because that's not what it means, do you want to serve the Lord? Yep, I don't want anything in the world, don't want it, none of it. I'm just asking you, search your heart, think about it. Is there something in you, not an absence of worldly desires, but a desire in you to serve God? Have you been thinking about it? Brother Branham said in the message, the law having a shadow, he says, why are you here? He says, if you are here as a real believer, now don't get hung up on some of these phrases. We can say that there's three kinds of believers. Well, you either are a believer, make believer, and unbeliever. But you're, if you're a believer, you always are a real believer. You may look like a make believer at one time. You may have looked like an unbeliever at one time. We could go back and find you at one time. We'd say, oh, look at that unbeliever. But no, he was a real believer. Some of the people that raised their hands that came to the Lord after 22, we might look at their old passport picture, look at their, look at their record. And if Facebook existed then, we might do some search and be like, oh my goodness, he's a deacon. He's a rank unbeliever. But no, they were a real believer. So don't get hung up on the phraseology here. He says, if you're a real believer and you're sitting here wanting to serve the Lord, God's obligated. Now, I want you to think about this, young people. This is God speaking to your heart in a very personal way, in a very honest way, maybe in a very unique way. But I can tell you, having had God deal with my heart beforehand, he loves you. He's interested in you. He wants you to succeed. He is trying to speak to you in such a very real way. Because, listen, the world can physically get in your face and tell you what they want to tell you. But God's doing it beyond physics. He is so real. You know, supernaturally, he's got right up in your face. You know it. You know he's got right down to where you are, the very things you're talking about, the very things you're contemplating. And listen, this is just Friday night. After this, I got three more. And now God is speaking to you saying, do you have a desire to serve me? So he says, I'm obligated. And you could not have that desire in your heart unless God created it in there. (laughs) 
You could not have that desire unless God created it in there. He says, you used to didn't do that, but God created it himself. Guys, Jesus said, no man can come to me except the father draw, hath sent me, hath, will draw him. And I'll raise them up in the last days. You can't even come to God of your own volition. It has to be him drawing you. Brother Bram said, you're not a Christian by your desire. You're a Christian by God's desire. And God has desired to put a desire in you. And so you've confessed that there's not, you haven't said, Brother Aaron, I do not want anything worldly. Nothing at all. You've said, I'm not considering that right now, but I am thinking that, yeah, deep down inside, I do want, I do want to serve God. Maybe you say, I do want what my dad wants or has. I, I do want to live a godly life. I do want to be able to appreciate the, the token being applied. I want to live free from these complexes. I want to live free from these urges and these desires. Yeah, I, I, deep down inside, there's a part of me that wants it. Then no matter how small that desire may seem, in light of all the other desires in your heart, God gave that to you. And if you were able to write down and we were to quiz you on a scale of one to ten, how big is your desire for worldly music? You might say eight. On a scale of one to ten, how big is your desire for worldliness? Nine. On a scale of one to ten, how big is your desire for these sensation things and these pleasure things and whatever it might be? You might say eight, nine, nine. And I say, how big is your desire for God? You might say, "Mm, three. No matter how small it may seem on your carnal scale of one to ten, God gave it to you. And one of the biggest lies the devil's ever told you is that your great desires for the world are greater than your small desire for God. That's one of the biggest lies the devil's ever told you, young people, is that your great desires for the world, your eight and your nine and your sevens and that little scale of one to ten, that those are greater than your little desire for God. The lie is that your desire for music and movies and stimulation is so great and it's so strong. It seems so very pronounced. It's so real. You can feel it. You know it's real. Well, do you like doing that? Yeah, I like doing it. Yeah, I enjoy that. Yeah, I start thinking about it. Yeah, I, I, I think about whenever the Lord is starting to deal with my heart or whenever I find myself in a situation where I start pondering the future and eternal things and God's challenging me. Yeah, I begin to think about when the next album's going to drop or when this single's going to come out or when the next one in this series of movies or, or the, the, the YouTube thing that I subscribe to or this, this creator that does this. And you start thinking about all these things. What about my ambitions? What about my desires? A young sister saying, well, I want to go to school and I want to get this degree and I want to achieve this and I want to do that. And then the Lord comes by and begins dealing with the audience. You start thinking about all that stuff. Those things are very, very real to you. You can't just sit there and lie. Go, nope, don't want to do it. Don't want to do it. No, let's just be real. You want to do it. But the problem isn't the fact that you want to do it. The problem is the devil lying to you and tricking you into thinking that because it's bigger, it's stronger. Are you listening to me? And he tries to, he actually wants to discourage you just because there's a war. Yeah, I want to serve God, but I want to, I want to do all these other things. And he said, see, right there. What is he trying to do? He's trying to scare you from something. He's trying to get in your mind and get you to think, yep, because you desire this one thing against this other thing, the very fact that they oppose each other means that your desire for the world is greater than your desire for God. The brother Bram says in the message, to whom should we go? He says, if you've got the least desire in your heart to receive God. If you've got the least desire in your heart to receive God, 
If I could put it this way, and I'm not trying to change what Brother Branham said, so I'll just say this is me putting it in a different way. If the least of your desires is to serve God, to receive the Holy Spirit, if you've got the least desire in your heart to receive God, to receive the Holy Spirit, let get in the right atmosphere, the right mood before God, and life will come into you just as sure, and I love this, and you'll start rising to translation. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a great sermon title, Rising to Translation. But now Brother Bram is saying a mouthful that if you the least of your desires is to serve God and the least of your desires is to receive God or to receive the Holy Spirit, that with the least desire you can get in the right atmosphere and the right mood. Because then that means the mood then begins to temper all these other desires. The right atmosphere begins to give context to all these desires. And a candidate for the new birth is not somebody that doesn't want the world, but it's somebody that has a desire for God and gets in the right atmosphere. That gets in the right mood. He says, you know, there's something about it. If God begins to put a hunger in a human heart, there's nothing going to stand in its way. Then if God's given you maybe what seems to be a little desire, and you thought with your rake, you drew it to yourself, you didn't raise your hand, but you were honest. In the midst of all the chaos and even your desire for the things of the world, the voices of other people, the situations you're being presented, the things that could come your way, you're thinking about it, you're considering it, but then you think over here and say, I have to be honest, there is something down inside of me that desires God. Brother Bram says, if God begins to put a hunger in a human heart, there's just nothing going to stand in its way. But the devil's a bully and a bluff. And he'll stand there and act like he can hinder it. He'll stand there and tell you this weekend's going to be like the one in August. The one like last March. The one like the year before and the year before. But he's a bluff and he's a liar. And he's trying to manipulate your emotions. trying to use your mind against you. But if God has put a desire in your heart, there's nothing can stand in that way. This is the scriptural principle. In the midst of the chaos and even your chaotic mind, deep down inside of there, there's a least desire to receive God, to receive the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because you may not feel like you've overcome. But in God's book, you have. Right now, it may not look like it, but you have. And he says, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, John has already written to us in chapter 2, verse 16, what's in the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Chaos. Out there and in here. But he says, greater is he that is in you than the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So often we think in terms of greater is he that is in you than he that is external. The greater is he that is in you than the guy in Bellingham or the person in Surrey. But he's actually bringing it right down to where you live. Greater is he, God, greater is he that is in you than the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And I want you to think about it this way. Greater is he that is in you than the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So greater is not more. Because if it was math, then we would all eat at McDonald's. Because how could two billion people be wrong? But the cognitive control system steps in and says, no, we're not going to eat at McDonald's. So greater doesn't mean more. 
Greater means something different than just the numbers and counting. Well, I want this and I want that. And you add it all. And it just seems like I have more desires for the world. But it doesn't matter how many desires you have for the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He's greater. But it's small, brother Aaron. It's greater. But I've got all this, but it's greater. But I've done this. I've done that. I want this. I want that. But it's greater. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In 2 Chronicles 32, when the servant said, oh, he's afraid because he saw all the host of the armies with him. And I said, oh, don't worry. There's more with us than are with them. It wasn't a mathematics, a matter of mathematics. He didn't have to count. And even though the hills were full, if he could have counted and said, well, I counted a thousand angels and 10,000 of the armies. The answer is still the same. There's more with us. There's more with us than are with them. There's more with us. And though you might say, if they're with him, with him, with man, it's impossible. With God, nothing's impossible. All things are possible. So it's not a matter of counting. Doesn't matter how many, how much bigger the groups are. Doesn't matter how many people do this. Doesn't matter how many people do that. Greater is he that is in you. If he is in you. Then everyone else could walk away, but you would remain. Why? Because he's greater. It's not a matter of counting. It's not, there's more. There's more desires. There's more of this. No, the one, him, greater is he that is in you. Brother Branham says in the message, remembering the Lord here a few months ago, I was out at the hospital to pray for a woman. In our city in Indiana, there was a little lady laying there wanted to get right with God. So she had the desire. She wanted to get right with God. She was a backslider. She wants come to my church. She went back out. Said seven devils entered. Of course, seven devils entered worse than there ever was. And there she lay in a hospital dying. And she said, Brother Branham, I don't want to die like this. And I said, all right, sister, you don't have to. You might be saying, I don't want to live like this. You don't have to. I don't want to go through the cycles, Brother Aaron. I would rather just quit than go through the cycles. All right, good. Let's quit going through the cycles. He says, if you still got a desire in your heart to serve God, he's never left you. You left him, but he never left you. If you've got a desire in your heart to serve God, God has not abandoned you. Because who put that there? He did. And why did he do it? So there would be something in you that would always maintain contact with them. You haven't been born again. You don't have the mind of Christ. You don't have the Holy Ghost. So he's got to put something in you. He's got to use something to get your attention. He's got to have some way to deal with you. He's got to have some way to woo you. What does he do? He puts a desire in your heart. Young people, listen to me. Don't let the chaos get in the way. Don't let the confusion begin to dominate your thoughts. Don't let the chaos of your mind and the chaos of the world determine the mood. Focus on that little desire that he gave you. Because the only safety from the chaos is to be born again. 
I could give my personal testimony of it. Many others could give their personal testimony of it. It's the only safety from the chaos. It's one thing to be born into chaos. It's one thing for chaos to be born in you. But then to be born again out of the chaos, that's what you need. You don't need a greater discipline. You don't need to try harder. You don't need to, you know, this time I'm going to do this and this time I'm going to do that. No, you need to take that desire that God gave you and focus on that. The musicians would come. I want you to ponder this statement very deeply in your heart now. Brother Branham says in the message, the oneness of unity, he says, men of honor, women, you who believe in God. He says, you who claim to have the spirit of God in your heart. Now, I want to take this very principle about to speak to you on, about to read this about. And I want you to put yourself in this situation. Because now he begins to speak to those who have the Holy Ghost. And he says, if you're sick, if you're needy or needy, you've got a weapon there to fight that sickness with. It's in you. God give it to you. Now, if you have the Holy Ghost tonight and you have a need, then God, you have that to fight with. God gave it to you. But if you don't have the Holy Ghost, he still gave you something. That desire was put there by God. He said the least desire in your heart to receive God. You couldn't have that unless God put that in your heart. So now now put yourself in this scenario. If you're needy, you've got a weapon to fight with. Why will you stand back like a coward? Why will we stand on the sidelines? Let's follow the captain. Follow him that went to Calvary. When he went to Calvary, he was wounded for our transgressions. With his stripes, we were healed. Take what he gives you. And fight sickness and sin. Take what he gave you and fight the desires of the world. Take what he gave you, he says, and fight unbelief away. Tell the devil he's a liar. Take what he gave you and tell the devil he's a liar. Oh, but you like this, but you want that. You've done this, you've done that. Yes, but that's a lie if you're trying to tell me it's greater than my desire for God. It's a lie if you say that that's going to keep me from getting what God wants to give me. Because if you want God, God wants to give you himself more than you want it. How much you plead for it, beg, no, how much you could write it, no matter how much you could quantify it, God wants to give it to you more than you want it. Take what He gives you and fight sin. Fight unbelief away. Tell the devil he's a liar. Do it tonight. Christ said He has overcome the world. Greater is He that's in you than He that is in the world. Greater is the power of Christ than the sickness that you have in your body tonight. Greater is the power of Christ than the little besetting sin that you can't overcome. He said, let's take that Holy Spirit and fight the devil down and walk out victorious as the heroes of the cross. What is he saying? Take what's been given to you. So I'm telling you tonight, take the desire for God and fight the unbelief. You got to take what's in your hand, what's in your heart. And in your heart, we've dug through it. We found in the midst of all the chaos, we found something. What's this? It's a little desire for God. You know, that's all God needs. And the fact that you desire God and you wrestle with the implications of that desire for God makes you different than the world. Because of all the things you've said and done, 
the mistakes you've made and you've went even beyond the barriers that your parents put in place and you engaged in things that you thought you could be protected from that you once prided you would never do and you found yourself you've transgressed in those very things and virtue's been taken and uh, and certain things that you abstain from and you're able to keep yourself from you've crossed that line and the devil tries to use that against you as a weapon see you're just like everybody else But the very fact that you desire to overcome that, to be restored back from that, the very fact that you desire, after all that's happened, you're still here. That makes you different than the world. And you know what the devil usually wants to call you? A hypocrite. How can you go to that camp and pretend to serve God for a few days when you know this, that, and the other? And they try to make you feel like a hypocrite. And it's the way the world tries to press you to where, you know what, you just finally need to step up and step back from that whole thing. Because you need to stop being a hypocrite. And the hypocrite argument is very persuasive. Because we can find in the scripture, in the Bible, look, the worst thing we could be is a hypocrite. But you, once again, the devil's lying to you. You are, no matter what it looks like, what your resume looks like, no matter what your social media page can tell me, and all your private photos and everything, no matter what it tells me, you are a real believer. You are ordained to life. You're a daughter of God. You're a son of God. I don't care what you look like, what you've gone through, what you're wrestling with. Down inside of you is a seed that says, I am a son or daughter of God. And you're a hypocrite when you're out there acting like the world. You're a hypocrite when you go along with their ideas and their programs. You're a hypocrite when you're acting worldly. Why? Because inside of you is a desire to be a daughter of God. Inside of you is a desire to be a son of God. You can't be a hypocrite here. You can't be a hypocrite worshiping God. You can't be a hypocrite serving God. Why? You're ordained to it. It's who you are. Come to Christ. Quit being a hypocrite. You can only be a hypocrite out there. But never a hypocrite in here. Why? Because you're ordained to this. Brother Branham says in the greatest battle ever fought. He says, what is Satan's weapon against you? It's to try to get you to disbelieve your weapon. He disarms you. He says, listen, real quiet now. Listen. If he can get you to disbelieve your weapon is equivalent. If he gets you to believe that your weapon is not strong enough, he has disarmed you. Now, if you all have the Holy Ghost, I would just, I would encourage you, take that faith. Take Christ. He's there on the battlefield. There he is. He gave you that Holy Ghost to overcome. He gave you that Holy Ghost to get you through this difficulty. He gave you that Holy Ghost to get over things that are broken, to bounce back from disappointment. And I would begin to just encourage you by the word of God to take that Christ who stands on the battlefield and let him just continue to overcome in you. But I'm speaking to young people who are being very honest. They don't have that. So what I'm telling you is to take what he gave you. And that's your weapon. You can't dig down deep and find the Holy Ghost right now because you don't have that. But you've got a desire. And if he can convince you right now that that little desire is not enough, he disarms you. But if you can believe right now that it's enough. You may not have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, but you have a desire for God. And that's the spark you need right now. That's the very thing you need to fight the darkness. 
It's the only weapon you need right now to begin to claim a promise is the want. Bow your heads in prayer. Just bow your heads for a moment. The least amount of faith is greater than the volumes of all the other senses. It may seem to be a very, very unique way of expressing it. And I would agree that perhaps it is. But in this beautiful presence that you're in, young people. Take what he's given you. And fight the unbelief away. You might say, I want the Holy Ghost. I don't know how to get it. I've tried before. I'm so confused. Everything just seems to be. I'm becoming numb, Brother Aaron. I don't even know what to feel anymore. I'm starting to get even more risky in my behavior because I just want to feel. I want to feel some excitement again. I want to. I want. I want something to, to make sense, or I want to feel. Uh, uh, I want to feel something, and then just oh, in the midst of all that tonight, something starts stirring. You go, yeah, there's a spark there. Take that now, with your heads bowed. Take that. And tell the devil he's a liar. Why don't you do it? Say, devil, you can't have me. Take that desire that he gave you and fight unbelief away. If you've got the Holy Ghost, use that tonight. Young people, if you got it, use it tonight. But if the only weapon you have is a desire, it's greater than all the other confusions and chaos that's in your heart. I want you to focus now on what he gave you. And start just saying to yourself, Lord... Some of you really want something. And when you do, you never let your parents uh, forget about it. I want this. I want this. I want this. You create wish lists. You set reminders. I want this. I'm going to save up for it. I want this. I'm going to do this. You work towards it. And all this, you, something starts getting in your mind. An unknown something begins to dominate you. And now your actions, your activities, everything you're doing is to achieve that. And you keep reminding your parents, I want this. I want this. I want this. I want this. All right. Right now, come to Father God. Say, Lord, I just want you. I want, to, I want things to make sense. I want to experience something, Lord, now that goes beyond myself. Something that tells me, yes, yes, it's real. Yes, it's for me. And that the past can just be, God can come and make sense of even the past. God's the only one that can take the chaos and bring order out of it. I'm not asking you to take anything else tonight, but a desire. With our heads bowed However you would like to express it to God. However you'd want to reach out to him and say, Lord, I'm Lord, I hunger for you. However you'd want to express it. As I pray, why don't you make your desire known? Even if it's just to say, Lord, I have the least desire. But in this atmosphere, Lord, I ask for you to help me. I ask for you to come to my aid and come to my defense. He's not angry with you, young people. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed in you. Some of you are thinking, well, I did this last time. He must be mad at you. No, he loves you so much. He's doing it this way. I love you. I'm not going to give up on you. Come to the one that loves you. He has an unquenchable desire to have you. Just give yourself to him tonight. Our gracious heavenly father, I just want to commit it to you now, Lord. In this atmosphere and at this mood, at this very moment, Lord, 
for young people in a setting that's very unique to their experience, Lord. They're pondering these things and thinking about these things. And Lord, I believe the word is trying to drive away the darkness and bring them to a place where they can begin to consider things as they really are. And now as the daughter sits there in the presence of the Lord and begins to wrestle with these things in a very real way, Lord, I want you to come to their aid. Come to their aid as they begin to wrestle, Lord, as they begin to struggle. Come to their defense, Father. Holy Spirit, don't leave them to their own devices. Don't leave them to their own thoughts. Don't leave them to their imagination, their conscience, their memory, and their affection. Oh, God, find that place deep down in their hearts, that thing you put in there, that desire, that they could begin to think about the fact that you have never left them, you've never given up on them, that you've actually discerned their very thoughts these last two services. You've actually brought before them hidden things and secret things. And now they know that you're real. And I pray that they would never doubt your love for them again. They would never doubt their election. They would never doubt your perseverance. They would never doubt your dedication. They would never fear your judgment. They would only fear displeasing you. And may you begin right now a work that will never end. Lord, I believe that I can stand with authority and with the power of God backing my words and rebuke the deformer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan, you are a liar and devil, your lies are useless upon these daughters and these sons tonight because they're taking the least desire and they're fighting the darkness. They're fighting the chaos. And I commit them to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. What do you plan? Go ahead and start singing if you have it.
trying to slip in and steal something away from you. What he's going to try to do is take that desire you have and pervert it. Try to get you to look at it differently. Let's sing it again. Don't let him. Just slap that hand away. Devil, you're not taking this. You may have taken a lot of things from me, but this is something God gave me and you can't take it. You could try to cover it up. You can try to confuse it. You could try to lead me down the wrong path with my other wants and my other desires. But this, Lord, I'm standing on tonight. You gave me a desire, God. And I'm not going to let the enemy take it away. Sing it. Why don't we all just stand to our feet and worship the Lord? You're all I want. Heavenly Father. Beauty. 